0: okay and then back again dr. Bukai uh, for her second lecture this afternoon
1: all right hello everybody again and uh, so I know that whoever's here now is really interested in the uh, in the aesthetics part of it and there's going to be some overlap with the previous lecture and, and that's on purpose because not everybody would have attended both both of the lectures so really the focus now is actually going to be on volumizing and and um, And then, of course, I'll welcome any questions afterwards. Well, my disclosures haven't changed in the last hour, so here we go. So once again, the the use of botulinum toxin in the upper face has reawakened interest uh, in the lower face for panfacial volume restoration. And uh, initially, we used fillers to treat lines, but as we were discussing, it's really about restoring volume and not just treating the lines themselves, although patients do come in and, and ask how they can get rid of certain lines. So, and of course, I do love to combine them both as well. So thinking about what, what the aging face is all about, there's structural changes, there's thinning of the dermis, there's fat loss and fat redistribution, and again, I had mentioned that article by uh, Pessa and Rorick, uh, describing at least nine fat compartments in the face, including in forehead, in certain regions where you wouldn't even think about fat compartments. Certainly there's skeletal remodeling, and, and I always tell women that they can lose up to 40% of, uh, of the mandible volume as they age if people have lost to teeth as well and didn't have implants, that can also cause uh, accelerated aging uh, of the face, and so it's important to get a dental history as well, and, uh, and the important thing to remember is because the ha- face is composed of, of so many different types of, of uh, units, structures, et cetera, it doesn't age as a homogeneous unit. It isn't evenly aging. There's some areas that, that, um, that age more rapidly than others. Now, in terms of, you know, taking statistics from ASAPs from 2009, Um, non-surgical procedures accounted for 85% of all aesthetic procedures. That means that they're not going away. And uh, if anybody's been resistant to uh, embracing these treatments, I think it's time to to lower the walls of resistance because they're not going away. And uh, soft tissue augmentation, however, Uh, although still rapidly growing, uh, accounts for 15% of all procedures, or roughly 1.5 million. So plenty of opportunity there. In terms of of what fillers are being used, uh, HA's comprise 1.3 million, whereas the uh, calcium hydroxyl apatite is 118,500 roughly. And uh, polylactic acid, although certainly getting uh, a lot of play, um, is is slowly increasing, and it's uh, just around 40,000 cases. Uh, treatments and autologous fat and uh, polymethyl methacrylate or PMMA are, are the others. So, by far and away, HAs, if you're going to start, start with HAs. It's easy. They have an antidote to them, so to speak, and, uh, and there's nothing permanent about them. So currently available fillers in the United States include uh, Restylane, Perlane, Restylane L, and Perlane L. It's nice, the addition of lidocaine. This is Medicis out of Scottsdale. And uh, Juvederm Ultra, Juvederm Ultra Plus, Juvederm XC, that includes the lidocaine in it from, from Allergan. There's uh, Provel Silk, which is Mentor, and because the concentration of, of HA is only 5.5 uh, instead of 20 to 24, as is found in the other of milligrams per ml, Provel silk has very, very little bruising, very little swelling. And for somebody who's shy, about uh, trying, trying a filler. This is a great, a great starting point. It also has lidocaine in it, so it's, it's a nice one. It's, it's one that can really be done the same day if you want to do something around the mouth, for example. And, uh, but of course, warn the patients that it's not going to last any longer than three months. So for the same reason that it has about a quarter of the amount of HA in it, as do the, the ones above it, uh, of course, side effects are less, but duration is also less. Um, I was actually asked a question about Hydrel. Hydrel is the name for Eleves. LFS was around uh, before. It's a purely cross-linked hyaluronic acid. It's 28 milligrams per ml, and, but the entire, the entire um, filler itself is cross-linked. And uh, I, I worked with it a little bit, not, not in studies or anything like that, but was given some, some samples to use and used it, and, and, did, and it injects a lot like Juvederm. However, however, uh, there have been several reports of, of nodules, uh, appearing two to three weeks after treatment, and that was in the first go-round as Eleves and, and also now with Hydrel. So I would just uh, exert caution in using that. The uh, pending FDA approval, most likely you know, soon around the corner, uh, around the corner would be Bellatero by MERS, and, uh, and the approval is imminent. The neat thing is that it can be placed superficially without causing the Tyndall effect. So for those who have very small etched-in lines, um, it, it can certainly work for that. Uh, it's not really a volumizer as currently HA fillers, but it's great for superficial lines. I have worked with it. It injects very similar to, to other HA's, uh, but you, you can't even feel it. There's just no lumps or bumps afterwards, and there's no Tyndall effect. So I think that'll be a nice, uh, a nice one that we can layer with with our other fillers as well. Uh, again, we have calcium hydroxyl apatite uh, in uh, bioform, now MERS, or the, after the merger, and that's known as RADIUS, and methacrylate PMMA, Artifil, formerly Artist Medical, now Suniva Medical, also San Diego, California. And uh, fillers by function, you know, I'm not here to give you that, that, those horrible, horrible slides with 10,000 fillers on them, but you can also think of them of what they do. There's biostimulatory, there's replacement, and what I call support fillers. And uh, biostimulatory fillers would stimulate collagen production, the resu- delayed results, delayed gratification. However, they tend to be longer lasting, and, uh, and an example of this would be poly lactic acid or Sculptra, or you can also have calcium hydroxyl apatite radius, which I mentioned in the other talk is really has instant gratification as well as delayed gratification. The, um, the replacement fillers, well, they're great for immediate results. Instant gratification. They do, give you for, they do allow for spontaneity for the patient that comes in and, and uh, decides, yes, I do want to do a treatment. There's no skin testing uh, needed as it was before, so uh, you can treat an initial visit, but technically there would be shorter-lasting results. Uh, but they do make them, because they're hydrophilic, they're great for replacing volume. Uh, HA's, uh, I've already discussed those as well. And um going that way. And uh, what I call support fillers, they don't typically add significant volume. They actually add structural support. This is where things like Collagen, Cosmoderm, Cosmoplast, uh, and Evolence, unfortunately, everything phased out and gone, not for any problems. Just I don't know if they just lost popularity or also um, The potential for because they don't volumize, maybe people feel that it's certainly not worthwhile continuing them. I'm I'm a little sad that Evolence is no longer manufactured because I really liked it in in areas where somebody was lean and needed some support, not necessarily volume. Uh, I used it off-label for tear troughs. The fact that it did not expand. Uh, did not cause any edema, but also was opaque at the same time, for me, made it a wonderful product to use uh, in the tear trough region. So I, I would be happy if, if somebody picked it up and, and it was uh, back on the market again. Um, so guiding principles of filler use. Though The face is divided into thirds. What you really want is balance and proportion in the face. You don't want to over-treat one area at the expense of another. You know, what point is it to have full beautiful lips if the upper face looks completely haggard so that's something what I'd mentioned before is that that youthfulness can often be defined as reflection of light from the face and again blurring of those boundaries that's just the best way that I like to, to think of it just blur the boundaries don't you know try to to strive for um, creating that that blur so that you don't know where one area ends and another one begins you should not be able to very easily define what's the under eye, what's around the mouth, what is the cheek, it should be harder to to create that distinction. And you don't want to create contrast of age within the face. Again, you want to keep that in harmony, and of course that would also apply contrast and age from from the face and then the body as well. Um, What have we learned about in the last decade? Well, it's not about the lines. Um, We want to shape the face and contour it. If you treat the cheeks, for example, the nasal folds folds will uh, will soften. Uh, Treating that area, the piriform fossa or the canine fossa, the piriform aperture, treating that area, which is an area that takes quite a bit of filler, uh, you can get the lips to revert and lift without actually having to even treat much lower in the face. So hopefully I'll be able to show you that. Uh, Again restoring temporal volume, you can actually get lift in the eyelids. And for the longest time I would do just... um, botulinum toxin A and resurfacing or radiofrequency to try to tighten the skin, and while that does give you some effect, the, the degree of improvement you can get by actually treating the temporal region, and it only makes sense, and I show patients, you know, I'll pinch kind of like pull the skin around the temples, well, the, eye, the eyelids lift incredibly as well. So, so that's something to keep in mind as well. And, uh, and again, filling under the jawline, for example, and in front of the ear, can, can, um, can lift the neck as well. Actually, filling in front of the ear, the preauricular region, uh, will go ahead and tighten the jawline. Filling under the jawline itself, under the chin, will lift the neck as well. So where can they be placed? Pretty much everywhere, just using the right one in the right place. So nasal nasolabial folds and cheeks, marionette lines, lips, perioral region, nasal dorsum. I, I treat quite a few. I treat quite a bit now of the nasal root. It's uh, certainly in patients that I've been treating now for 10, 15 years, and, and they have aged. I mean, I haven't been able to stop the bo- the, the bone loss when I treat glabellar complex, for example. It uh, sometimes the results for their Botox isn't as nice or, or disport or maybe Xiamen down the road, uh, isn't as nice as, as it used to be, where they, they have softening of the lines, but they feel like their, their nose is kind of, um, that, that the brow kind of is, is splayed and kind of bunched up and uh, almost kind of compressed, and I'll, tr- I'll try to point that out. So, so building up the, the root of the nose with a filler can be a great, great um, tool. It doesn't take very long. It's very safe to do. Temporal regions, infraorbital region. Really, and I've said it a million times, this is the trickiest area to enhance. Be very, very careful. Know what you're doing. Think of the anatomy. Work with the filler that, with which you feel most comfortable and, and do a little bit. Maybe you'll spread it out over several sessions. Uh, treating the chin, perimental depressions, jawline, and of course, hands. A youthful face needs youthful hands. Uh, my favorite filler for doing the hands, and I know that they've sought FDA approval for this is calcium hydroxyl apatite radius, and uh, typical volumes are 1.5 cc's uh, injected uh, under the skin and massaged, and it does, it does a very nice job as well. So what do you want to consider when you are choosing a filler? Because there are so many out there, and the more fillers you do, the more you're gonna realize that no one filler does it all for, you know, for, for every patient, or for what you're trying to achieve. So patient goals, what areas are you treating? Characteristics of the skin, much thinner skin may not do as well with certain type of fillers as more robust skin as well. How immediate do you want the results to be, duration of results, and of course you want to be skilled and have knowledge of the product, and cost is a factor as well. But but cost is not necessarily the first factor to consider. uh, Sometimes it's the first one that patients consider, but but it, it shouldn't be the first one at the top of your list in making that decision. So things I use in my practice by area. Um, I use Perlane for cheeks, lips, nasal reshaping, perimental depressions, nasolabial folds, and I've used it on all areas of the face. I have pretty much, so if I could only have one filler and that's the only one I could ever work with, then that's probably the one that I find the most versatile in in that regard. Um, Restylane, uh, again, can also be used, but it's a smaller particle size, so you can have slightly uh, more superficial uh, implantation. And again, it's not that Perlane lasts longer than Restylane, that's not what it's it's about. about the size of the the particle, so I often say, you know, when trying to explain to patients what the difference is. I'll say that uh, the size of the particles of wrestling would be like having BBs in a cup. And, and having purlin would be like having marbles in a cup. You'd still have a cup's worth, but it's the actual particles that are a different size and so you can place a little bit differently. Uh, radius for cheeks, for nasal reshaping, perimental depressions, nasolabial folds. Definitely my favorite for the hands. Absolutely never in the lips, and I will show a picture of a complication of using radius in the lips. I know a lot of people were instructed and initially trained that they could do it, but, uh, but I don't think it's a smart idea, so um, it's not, not a great one to use for, for the lip area. I didn't list it here, but I have been increasingly using it now for treating certain areas in the tear trough, uh, but again, just using small amounts and, and choosing the patient carefully as well. Um, Juvederm Ultra Plus, I do like for nasolabial folds, body of the lip, Juvederm Ultra, more for the vermilion border, border of the lip, mental crease. It can be layered over the, uh, over perlane radius for more superficial defects. Uh, sometimes I'll just take the Juvederm Ultra, I can do Restylane for that matter, and put it through a 32-gauge needle and, and use the shearing force to create a smaller particle, hopefully when Belotero is out maybe that will eliminate the need uh, for that. Uh, Again, Prevel Silk is a niche product, great for patients to preview lip enhancement or or used in patients who develop uh, excessive edema from fillers. with the higher, with the higher you know, HA concentration, but, and there's definitely a decreased risk of bruising. Again, remember with HA, uh, because of the pH, bruising is, is definitely a higher risk than some of the other fillers. Uh, things with collagen, what was so nice about it is that collagen actually promotes clotting, so, so bruising was, was much less as well. Um, I had already mentioned this one, and, uh, and then if I were only limited to one filler, why would it be? Well, even though I'd be using it off-label, uh, there's really no areas that I consider off-limits. There isn't a place where I, wouldn't, where I wouldn't place it, where I'd be worried about vascular compromise. As long as you're using, you know, right amounts, uh, it's also one that I, can, that I can undo if I need to. I can wait for it to wear off. I can massage it even two weeks after being placed, or I can use hyaluronic acid, I mean, uh, hyaluronidase to dissolve it as well. Uh, it's great for facial shaping and for adding volume. It has great lifting capacity. There's great big arguments about the different characteristics of, of fillers, which ones can lift more, which ones uh, lift less. Everybody has their own personal opinions, and I'm sure that... Um, you know, the results that I can obtain with one, maybe somebody else doesn't, but at the same time what I might find not to be as uh, very good in my hands may be excellent in somebody else's hands. So, the key here is to use with what you, know, what you feel comfortable using and, um, and just going slowly as well. So my approach. So I often do use more than one filler type in a patient, and I do combine with chemo denervation as discussed in the last talk. Uh, I'll use Restylane for residual frown lines. Uh, and why that instead of Perlane? I can use Perlane too, but the Restylane just injects through a 30-gauge needle or even a 32-gauge needle. So I, I find it better for superficial placement as well. When you're treating residual glabellar lines, though, make sure you draw back. It's an area of, of a, quite a bit of vasculature. So what you don't want is to be injecting into a, a blood vessel. Everybody knows the lessons of necrosis in the glabellar. Following uh, injections of, of anything, pretty much, like there. But I know plenty of people that also use Radius without any problems. I'm just I'm just not as brave. The um, Juvederm Ultra for lips I do like them for the same fact that that to me Juvederm um, doesn't have the same lifting capacity as the. Perlane uh, Restylane family, I do think it is softer feeling, and so I do like it for the for the lips. It has a little bit higher HA concentration, total HA. It does, t- in my opinion, give a little bit more edema, but then that's nice for the lips as well. Sometimes I'll combine. I might use Restylane to outline the vermilion border. Again, this is all off label, and then use uh, if I am going to treat the body of the lip, then I will use something like Juvederm Ultra. It can be the Ultra Plus, but that's a lot more uh, a lot more viscous as well. Uh, I'll, for the cheeks I do like um, excuse me sorry about that uh, for the cheeks I like the um scu- I like or, or radius and uh, but I might combine it with sculpture for longer lasting and I was asked earlier if I will you know combine them at the same visit I actually will do them at the same visit I might place some some sculpture just and I'm saying that because I don't have another polylactic acid to use I know we should be using generic names but sculpture is faster And uh, so I'll use Sculptor for for placement more deeply and uh, for delayed gratification, but at the same time, I'll go ahead and layer uh, something over it. And the planes of injection are a little bit uh, different as well. Pain management, that's an important thing. Sometimes people don't want to do fillers or patients don't want to have fillers because they've heard that it really, really hurts. Well, now with the addition of, uh, or the inclusion of, uh, lidocaine in our HA fillers, almost all of them come with lidocaine now. You can choose to use it or not use it. But, uh, and then, of course, um, there is FDA approval for Radius to be mixed with, um, with lidocaine prior to injection, and they're kind enough, Merz is kind enough to supply us with a, with a connector and a syringe to do that mixing just beforehand. Uh, in terms of, and again, pain is subjective, you know, somebody can tell you that something hurts and you have no way to refute that. Um, and, and it's much more important that a patient be comfortable, so they'll come back for a repeat treatment as well. I rarely do blocks anymore. They can be done, and I, and I, when I used to, and I gave this talk to you all five years ago, or something similar. I said, "Oh no, be kind to your patients. Do the blocks. It's an easy, easy thing to do." But quite honestly, when you're reducing, when you're weakening the musculature around an area that you're treating, you are changing the topography, the contours of the skin, uh, or of the face, and so it's a lot more difficult to assess when you've placed enough filler. Um, and and in certain lines that you want to fill that are dynamic and not necessarily just static lines. So I try not to use the nerve blocks and I start with with topical agents. Uh, There's liposomal lidocaine, uh, which is LMX4, LMX5 uh, by Biopal. Never mind that the five says it's for, for anal use, you can use it on the face just don't tell your patients. And uh, the nice thing, though, is that it takes effect rather quickly, faster than faster than EMLA does. And because it is just lidocaine, EMLA is very commonly used as well, as, as is also the, the BLT. I'm not sure what the future will be of compounding pharmacies now, especially with certain things in the news about people having uh, bad reactions to some of the compounded agents. But uh, But the nice thing about the about the topical anesthetics is you can keep some in-house in your office but you could also get small tubes to give the patient to take home and they can apply it before they come in. The other thing is occlusion is not needed and because uh, Emla for example, there's nothing wrong with Emla, I mean it's, it's a great product, uh, but the Theoretically, because of the, the ingredients that are, that are in there, it's the eutectic mixture of, of lidocaine and, and uh, prilocaine. Prilocaine has been associated with meth-hemoglobinemia, so in you treating larger surface areas, you may, AMLA may not be the one that you want. It, also, it needs occlusion, and it takes about an hour to take effect. So if time is of the essence, you're much better uh, using one of the liposomal ones that has a more rapid delivery system. Uh, as well. Um, Local infiltration, not typically a first-line option, but when I'm doing uh, treatments with Sculptra, I will use very tiny amounts of uh, just 1% 1 lidocaine, no epi, because I don't want blanching, Um, and I don't want uh, blanching either when I'm using it as local infiltration for other products, only because if you do have inadvertent intravascular injection then and blanching is one of the signs, you may not see that if you've already blanched it uh, with your your, um, lidocaine, including epi. The, um, but I will I will do some of that before sculpture treatments. Ice is fantastic. Can't say enough about ice. And you can do pre-treatment analgesics, it's acetaminophen. Sometimes patients want something stronger. They want to. Uh, Um, you know, Vicodin, Darvacet, something like that. But quite truthfully, if you give them adequate topical as well as ice and sort of talk them through it or do the distraction where maybe if you have an assistant in the room, uh, they can be tapping on the shoulder, on the contralateral part of the face, I I think that that generally does does the trick as well. But again, comfort is key. And uh, again, we talked about having the... um, the lidocaine in, inside the fillers. Uh, I like the fact that that in the medicis family doesn't charge extra for the lidocaine, in contrast to the um, to the Allergan family of fillers. But those are those are personal, you know. Those are those are my personal things. So I will I will say that, um, and I think that they both work equally effective. Uh, again, premixing of lidocaine for calcium hydroxyl apatite came in 2009. And uh, remember that it's still considered off-label, adding lidocaine as part of the diluent when, considering, when uh, reconstituting Sculpt or PLLA. So we commonly do it, that's how we're taught to do it, but that's still considered off-label as well. Uh, this is what we're talking about, the public health advisory, life-threatening side effects with the use of skin products containing numbing ingredients for cosmetic procedures. And uh, because oftentimes we're in offices where there's laser hair removal or some other things, uh, again, Keep in mind the toxicity of lidocaine and uh, sometimes when patients tell you that they're a little bit dizzy and you think that they're having vasovagal reaction, they may actually be having toxicity. So look at that. See if they don't complain of any kind of circum, um, or any tingling on the hands and feet or, and don't assume that they're just hyperventilating. There's, I, I'm sure that I've, I've probably caused some toxicity as well. So just be well versed. Just be careful with that. Uh, adverse events. Um, lots. Most of the time things go wrong, but when things, when things don't go, I mean, go, they go right, but when they don't go the way we want, usually it's injection or technique rela- related. That's much more common. Product related is, is less common as well. So injection related uh, techniques, and the more you inject, the more you're going to cause these in patients. I mean, I would never stand up here and say I've never caused a complication because I'm going to show you plenty of complications that I've caused. So bruising is one, A hematoma is another, infection. Uh, local tissue necrosis, vascular occlusion, nodules and papules. Uh, with regard to infection, there is something called biofilm, which I'm sure you've read about, and there's more articles you know, coming about it, but basically it's, it can appear as something that are these so-called sterile abscesses that patients come in and you drain this purulent material, you send it for culture, it comes back repeatedly negative, you try some antibiotics for 10 to 14, maybe 20 days, still not getting, you know, they're still having this, and I had a patient once and I was not able to get photos to you, but. What I think happened is that one time she had injections, this was in Mexico, and she was using an approved filler over there, had thermos treatment, developed sterile abscess, these so-called sterile abscesses, had been treated with intralesional um, Kenalog, uh, I did some of those treatments myself, I, I, I indeed the lesions, but they would continue to come back for a couple of years. So I hadn't done her initial treatment, I just got her for the complications, but since she lived in Mexico and was usually you know, being treated, followed over there, she was put on systemic corticosteroids. Uh, no, no attention was paid to her calcium, um, well to her bones, let's just say that. She ended up with a hip fracture and then having to have a hip replacement, all from taking uh, long-term corticosteroids to suppress this. Back to biofilm, it's most likely, it is just our typical bacteria. However, they can't be cultured by the usual means. Uh, they, change, they change into uh, different states uh, deeply under the skin. So the, the way to do it is just to do very, very long-term treatment uh, with antibiotics, and that will help. But the best treatment is prevention. So cleanse the skin, something that often you know, we overlook in, a, in our busy practices. When they come in, make sure you clean the skin really, really well. Don't inject when they have makeup on. God knows what they're dragging in. And, uh, and, and just make sure that you do that step to remove all the makeup. And you can tell them ahead of time if they're planning to go back to work or back somewhere to bring their, uh, if you don't do touch-ups in the office of, of makeup, have them bring their own and, and they can apply it afterwards. But, but really go that extra mile to make sure that you remove the, the makeup even before putting a topical numbing agent as well. So this is somebody that I, I uh, injected. You can see how recently this was. I just had it emailed to me, and I apologize for the quality of the pictures. We had a major computer crash at the office, and we're just getting things restored. But on October 20th, this lovely patient, who I've been seeing now for uh, 11 years, who actually came to see me for acne, also Accutane. It seems to be the common pathway. Uh, She's also somebody who had uh, bypass and lost uh, about 180 pounds. And so she's this very petite, attractive woman, but uh, she asked me not to use her entire face, but that I could show her eyes. So I went ahead and had treated um, with hyaluronic acid with uh, Restylane brand, uh, placing deep under the bone. And um, she had no problems afterwards. And the next day she called and says the bruise just keeps growing and growing and growing. And I was a little bit frightened. Of course, she was supposed to go for a job interview two days later uh, to Pittsburgh. I'm in San Antonio. She was going to Pittsburgh. And I had her come in immediately. And that's another point. When somebody calls and says they're having a bruise, if you have a laser, get them in because I have a a long-pulsed ND ND YAG laser, I have a Gemini laser, and I'm happy to give you the settings that I used afterwards. But basically, really by, we did treatment on, actually, I treated her on the 19th, she came in on the 20th with this bruise, and I didn't get to photograph her onto the 25th, but I can tell you because she sent me a picture on her iPhone that her bruise was practically gone, and it's almost all gone there, and this is just five days later. And so doing that, you can really improve the, the bruising, and I, I learned this from Tina Alster at a meeting, and, um, and this is the particular laser that I happen to have. So if they bruise, send them immediately to whoever does the laser. I don't charge for that because I'm the one who caused the bruising, but that's something that, that you can do. Um, and I was really scared that I was causing some type of retrobulbar hematoma. I don't know what I thought you know, I had done, but she had no visual problems, the sclera, the conjunctive, everything was clear there. So I, I knew that I wasn't in that big a problem, but I really felt badly for her because I didn't want her to miss her job, her job interview. Uh, this patient, uh, I did not do her initial treatment, and I apologize for the, for the quality of this picture. that's a black background, but most of the time when I'm photographing somebody in the office, I'm not thinking that I'll actually be using their pictures for a presentation. But now that I, now I'm going to, like I said before, invest in better equipment and more standardized so that any picture can be used with the patient's consent. So this is a patient who had had Restylane injections for her, her lip for many years with absolutely no problem. And then her usual, her usual um, treating physician was out of town, so she went to somebody else. And uh, she went to a spa, saw an ER physician, who does have a good practice. I'm not going to say she doesn't, but uh, decided that calcium hydroxyl appetite would be longer-lasting, and so proceeded to inject 1.3 cc's into just the upper lip alone, and uh, again, this patient, for privacy, asked me not to use her, the front view of her face, so I'm, I'm restricted only to these views. And while that may not look like it's very much swelling, trust me, it was this huge kind of duck bill. And she happens to work in a large she happens to work in a large company and is head of human resources, so it was a bit of a, of a trouble for her to go to work and, and show her face. So. The lips were rock hard. There wasn't, you know, I couldn't use hyaluronidase there because she came to me and says, Oh, you can use that enzyme. I said, No, I can't because these are calcium particles along with a different type of filler. So she started to come in in May. And, um, and actually, I have great follow ups in June, but that's not what was emailed to me. But I basically did two sessions of intralesional kenalog. And uh, for those who are going to ask me where I injected, I actually injected just above. Uh, above the vermilion and just a tiny bit into the body of the lips. I mean, the lips just felt rock hard. I can't even explain. They were just stiff and rock hard. So I used a total of one cc of three milligrams per ml, like what you would use maybe to inject an acne cyst, and threaded it. I mean, I didn't know exactly you know, how to approach this, but I went ahead and did like a linear threading to sort of disperse it. I uh, had, her, had her massage it and come back in two weeks and we did this for three times and it was completely gone. So this is, uh, and it came back. So the, the key points here is that now her projection above her lower lip is much, much less, but you can also see from the curvature in this direction that she's got a little bit, she still has a nice curve, but she doesn't have that exaggerated, almost little, you know, like a U under there. It shouldn't be quite this big and especially not for the particular patient's age where she's closer to 50, she's not a 20 year old. So so that's, that's something that you can do. And I'm not sure why it worked. Maybe what she was having was excessive inflammation and edema, and that's all I did. But I prefer not to use oral uh, corticosteroids when possible and try to, treat, uh, try to treat locally as well. I have had other patients that had uh, the calcium hydroxyl apatite used in their tear troughs, and I was trying to get this picture for you. But basically, it gives like a salmon kind of orangey salmon discoloration in the area, and for that I've actually used Fraxel uh, Restore laser, the the erbium-doped Fraxel, and uh, and I can give you settings on that afterwards as well, and that's worked very nicely. Um, Product related. There can be allergic reactions, foreign body granulomas, and to some extent uh, edema because again hyaluronic acid can hold a thousand times its weight in water, therefore HA fillers do tend to cause more edema due to the nature of the product and again more bruising due to the nature of their pH as well. And um, so is it a nodule or is it a granulomatous reaction? Just to throw a little dermatology into it. Well, nodules can occur with any fillers. They usually appear by two weeks. They're localized, stable, and persist until they are absorbed, excised or treated and it's technique-related, all right? So if you feel these nodules. Granulomas, on the other hand, are usually aggressive inflammatory response, can, recur, can occur months to years post-treatment, can appear in all treated areas, and may respond to intralesional corticosteroid injections, assuming that this isn't a, a case of biofilm. So it gets a little bit tricky there as well. And uh, again, potential complications, unrealistic patient expectations contact dermatitis due to topical anesthetic preparations. I see this a lot, and in your patients that have skin of color darker skin, they can get post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation afterward. So so be careful. Monitor. Don't just put the the numbing agent on and disappear for for hours and then have them come back and find out that they're beet red afterwards. You can have nodules from superficial placement filler. You can certainly have that Tyndall effect, which is uh, usually superficial placement of HA fillers. Uh, There have been lip nodules reported after calcium hydroxyl apatite. Artifil, um, well, PMMA, then PLLA Sculptra. So use of these is contraindicated in the lip. Don't get into trouble with this. You already have something that works if you're treating the lips. Don't go and, and try to, to say yes to the patient. I'm going to be the hero and give you something longer lasting and you know because I'm so experienced and I'm sure I won't complicate. Uh, it, it's just not worth it. It's definitely not worth it. So, so stay away from the lip with these particular fillers as well. and. Um, Again, uh, you can have nodules after treatment with PLLA. They call them like little collagen pearls. And, uh, and it's usually techni- t- uh, injection technique or using product reconstituted a few hours prior to the time of treatment. I started using PLLA probably more than 10 years ago. It came out under the name Newfill. I had just moved back to the United States from Mexico. And I was really excited because this stuff was really inexpensive. And the, the principle of it made perfect sense. Why, why not use a powdered, absorbable suture? To stimulate, you know, to kind of simulate injury and let the body make its own collagen. I thought it made perfect sense. But at the time, we were told to reconstitute one to two hours prior to treatment, use about two mLs volume total. And I got tired of clogged needles, minimal results. I never, saw the vo- I never saw the nodules, but I never really saw the great results. So even though at the time it was something like $200 for a kit of two vials, I thought, wow, that's, you know, I just thought this would be great, you know, for patients, can keep the cost down. Um, it, I, I just sort of abandoned it, and I didn't re-embrace it until about four years ago as well. Um, skin necrosis and sloughing from intravascular injection filler stop if blanching occurs while injecting. In contrast to that, you can have modeling of the skin, and that's usually venous compression, and it usually resolves fairly quickly, so it's important to differentiate between intravascular placement as, as, uh, as opposed to just some modeling from venous uh, compression. Uh, these so-called sterile abscesses, developing two weeks after treatment, were reported after Elevus injection September 2008, and even since that time as well. So uh, I know that that we all get visits from our co-op reps, and I, I remember when I said, oh, is this, um, I said, this is elevus. you're like, no, no, this is Hydrel, this is Hydrel. I said, no, I think this is Elevus. It is the same product, and it's just under a different name, and I'm not here to put anybody down. I'm sure that there's more often you know, good, good results than, than complications. I'm just trying to minimize the amount of complications in my practice because I want to be able to sleep at night. Um, again, avoiding complications. Ask the patient to stop all blood thinners. Uh, of course, that's with the consent of the primary care physician. And, uh, and because of your background as physician assistants, you have so much more uh, current knowledge and, and overall knowledge of, of internal medicine. Than what I have now, you know, diluted over the last 20 years, since I was there. Inject slowly. Bruising is related to flow, volume injected over, so it's volume in, uh, over time injected, flow rates. So this is the critical flow rate. Less than 0.3 mL per minute, uh, or greater than 0.3 mL, are associated with an increase in local adverse events. Your uh, reference is there by Glowgow and Kane uh, in derm surgery in 2008. Uh, hopefully that's in your in your handouts as well. So they always say time is money and you want to inject quickly to get to the next patient. Go slowly. Just give yourself enough time. I think a happy patient with less bruising is more likely to, to be ultimately beneficial to your practice in terms of referral than somebody in whom uh, you got out the door really quickly to, to try to see more patients as well. The, um, So avoiding and managing complications. Visible product due to superficial placement. Well, just massage or remove the product by aspiration, incision and drainage, or use hyaluronidase if HA was used. In terms of infection, you want to prevent. Cleanse and prep the skin. Remove makeup. Avoid the use of chlorhexidine near the eye because of the risk of keratitis. Prophylaxis with antiviral agents with a history of herpes viral infections. This gets overlooked so many, many, many times. If you're doing extensive injections, even if it's not around the mouth, it's probably not a bad idea to prophylax because sometimes people get uh, cutaneous uh, herpes simplex, and it's not necessarily uh, labialis. It can be somewhere else, and it can be a recurring. It can be a recurring thing, so it's it's important to. To get that history. Uh, again, you want to, for treatment, you want to culture fluctuant nodules and start clarithromycin or a tetracycline empirically, pending results as well. Um, those angry red bumps, there's an algorithm by uh, Rhoda Narens, who is probably one of the foremost uh, filler authorities in the country, and uh, Mark Jewell, who's plastic surgery, but also is uh, highly involved in safety of fillers. So there's a good reference there. And vascular compromise, this is so easy prevention. Aspirate back on your syringe. It doesn't take any extra time really to do this, and you're going to make sure you're not in a blood vessel, especially if you're uh, around the nasolabial fold or in the glabellar uh, complex as well. Um, again, vascular compromise. Glabella region is the area at greatest risk. Stop injection immediately. Massage. Obviously, don't ice. That's, we always run for ice for everything here. You want to heat things up. Warm presses to increase blood flow. And consider even applying a 2% nitro paste and, of course, warn patients of, of a headache uh, as well. And then hyaluronidase if the HA filler was used. It's actually becoming... Um, I don't know if there will ever be a a mandatory move to stock hyaluronidase in the office, but I think it's probably the more fillers we do, the the more I think it would be within the standard of care to have some. And I have to say that I never used it until last year, and now I'm wondering how I ever lived without it. So um, again, hyaluronidase, enzyme of animal origin that degrades hyaluronic acid. When I say it's animal origin, that means that it comes from animals that are not humans, And it can induce an allergic reaction, and I'll I'll do that. So the commercially available, there's only three that are on the market, Amphidase, Vitrase, and Hyalinex. And uh, yes, you can get it compounded as well, but I was buying compounded Hyaluronidase until I had a problem with a patient, and now I go for the Vitrase brand myself. And and so really Hyaluronidase, using it for removing HA is, is actually... Uh, off-label use for what we do in, in cosmetic procedures. Uh, the actual FDA-approved indications are really to increase the absorption and dispersion of other drugs, such as retrobulbar anesthetic block for cataract surgery, subcutaneous infusion of fluids, what's called hypodermoclysis, so for example in elderly dehydrated patients you can't get a line, so you, you would do injections to get just fluids to rapidly go, and as an adjunct for subcutaneous urography for improving resorption of radio agents. Well not certainly anything I do in my practice. So every, my use is all off-label. So its use is off-label, and I'm not going to cover dosing in this lecture. I did put a reference for, for dosing, but it's very individualized. But you do have to do skin testing for all three patients. I had fabulous photographs of a patient that I've been treating for years, and, uh, and then her allergic reaction to hyaluronidase. Unfortunately, she's withdrawn consent for use of her photographs, um, and so I can't use them. But they're actually pretty, it's, it's, the, it's a lecture that was Complications from treating complications, so um, so do the skin testing. It says 20 minutes. Honestly, it takes about 10 minutes, and it's just a tiny amount you're going to do, just like you would a PPD, and uh, and it's very very clearly marked on the package. Uh, history of bee sting allergies, and because hyaluronidase uh, is actually found in bee sting venom, and a positive hypersensitivity uh, reaction would be absolute contraindications. Also, if you use it and you find that you're not getting a great response, find out what, uh, what the patient's taking, because epinephrine, benzodiazepines, heparin, phenytoin, and furosemide are incompatible with hyaluronidase. Um, drugs that may decrease effic- efficacy are antihistamines. And my lord, in San Antonio, there's tons of people on antihistamines. And uh, so, so those are things to look for. But salicylates, cortisone, and estrogens could decrease um, the efficacy of this as well. And uh, there's the references uh, as well. This is from Dermatologic Surgery 2010, volume 36, pages 1071 to 1077. But that's a a great review article that that just came out uh, over the summer as well. Avoiding problems in the periorbital region. I mentioned it this morning. I try to avoid same-day treatment of crow's feet uh, along with treating anything in the orbital or or up to the orbital rim, especially with hyaluronic acid, again, for prolonged uh, edema. And I won't uh, elaborate on this. So, um, in terms of tips for optimal out- outcomes, you want medical and cosmetic history, patient goals and expectations, photographs, at rest and animating. Really important to get those animating photos. Treatment plan is uh, individualized. Have a great uh, knowledge of your products. And uh, again, the best way to manage a complication is by prevention, and by all means, follow up your patients. It, you know, I just sort to, to say, I make it a mandatory visit. I say, if you don't come for your mandatory follow-up, you may not get what you, you know, want. Now, here comes the fun part, the case studies. So. This is a patient, this is her before and her after. I didn't do anything to her lips. This was really just back, this is back from 2003, all we had was Restylane. So treating the nasolabial folds, I didn't realize I was treating something by name, the piriform. Uh, Fossa in this area. I did also treat the lines in her because she had a nice full face and those lines were there But it changes the position of the lips Uh, The lips kind of start to kind of cave in and uh, sort of go into the face People always say their lips are collapsing and sort of hiding in as soon as you restore volume in this area the lips come right back out again Um, So that's that's something to keep in mind there this is uh, a patient I treated back in 05. Uh, she happens to be a cardiologist. And all I used for her, again, I didn't have Perlane at the time, so I used Restylane. And that's the only thing I had available. And, uh, and I used it to treat the, the te- temporal atrophy. And uh, I could, she probably could have still used some more. But the injection is placed deeply. There's nothing that vital that resides in this area. And the temple often extends three to four milliliters even back behind the hairline. So make sure you're injecting enough, enough volume in there as well. Um, Lower face, this is a, a patient who's in her 70s, and I actually did a combination. To say that I only did filler would be cheating, but uh, I had done before. Prior to this photograph, she had had some resurfacing done, but even at the same time, although her lines were better, and I had done CO2 resurfacing, she still needed volume. So marionette lines, again, those lips that sort of curve in, like they're disappearing, uh, and you can see she has overall volume loss. So for her, uh, again, because of the timing, it was uh, lane in the lower face. And um, this is for lip augmentation. Uh, this is a patient, again, this was, would be considered off-label. And she had very, very tiny lips. But I also noticed that she didn't have much by way of filtral columns. So what I did for her was, uh, again, using Restylane to treat the, the filtral columns. And you want to come down you know, where it starts and, and just medially to the cupid's bow. It's hard to keep this thing still from far away. But not on the outside of it. But that will just come right back down and plump in. And then what I did was I did a tiny bit of filler coming in from just above the lip, injecting medially to this little pillow, and likewise coming in the the other way. You don't wanna create like a sausage all the way across. You wanna respect the regions of the lip. So I typically will do, if I'm gonna do a lip enhancement, I'll do a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here, and a little bit there, going toward the midline, but trying not to cross the midline to avoid that sausage mouth. Uh, I showed you her picture, so in the essence of time, I'm gonna skip through that one. but again, this was the, the one where we had done a combination of um, hyaluronic acid, four syringes at the first treatment for the upper face, followed on her second treatment um, about a month after the first one uh, for tre- calcium hydroxyl apatite in the lower face as well, 1.3 cc's to each one. I happen to like calcium hydroxyl apatite, especially when I'm treating the jawline because I can place it right above the bone, and, and I think it gives a really nice, uh, nice contour to the face as well. Um, this is going to be a tough one to appreciate because of the two different colored backgrounds. But this is a patient who doesn't like her nose. Again, uh, she asked me not to show her, her front view. And it's kind of hard to, to appreciate what was, what was done, especially in this picture, the before and the after, uh, because I also treated her, her so-called smile lines uh, as well, but what happened with the nose is she has a nose that tips up too much and she also doesn't have as much curvature going toward the lips, so without actually touching her lips you can see that by treating this region over here, that piriform aperture, it gives a little bit more tilting to the lips. I know that they're not exactly the same angle, but take my word on this one. And, uh, and front-wise, she actually has too much of a dip here, so I did just a little bit of the hyaluronic acid to give a little bit smoother uh, contour. To the face as well. And actually, some was done on the nasal tip here, which is a little bit flat and shorter, and to try to give her a little bit more smoothing on the tip. And I don't have any problems with necrosis or anything like that, even using uh, hyaluronic acid with, uh, with lidocaine contained in it. Um, this patient, they just emailed me the photographs, and I apologize. Once again, this was taken in front of, with the light behind her instead of the light toward her. But she's a patient that I've treated for many years with, um, with uh, botulinum toxin type A. And she was moving to Florida. So we had actually planned, she didn't like all these little lines and crinkling and uh, on the cheeks. And this is a scar from a childhood accident. So what she had wanted me to do, notice the the crease in her earlobes as well. She had wanted to do Fraxel. We were actually gonna do the Fraxel repair, the CO2 Fraxel, but then she was gonna move, moving to Florida, wasn't gonna stay out of the sun. So I had thought, well, you know what? She needs massive amounts of volume. uh, And I still had time to do the polylactic acid on her. So I went ahead and did two vials, one on each side. The reconstitution was 6 mLs of sterile water with 2 mLs of 1% lidocaine, again, off-label. And uh, injections were placed, some of them were more superficial, but quite a few of them were just deeper. I went toward the, you know, I treated this preauricular area, and I guess some of it diffused into the ear, into the the earlobe itself, because they got plumper as well. But what you'll notice is, and I'm sorry again for the light, but notice how the lip looks like an older lip. It's kind of, convex as it faces outward, and without touching her lips at all, you now start to get that nice kind of convexity and that little ski slope jump as well. You're still; She still has some, uh, some nasolabial fold that's visible, but even children have those as well, so you're not trying to efface those. And this is another view. Maybe it's a little bit better with the lighting. Again that lip that sort of drops down as well as now the lip that tilts in this direction. But we got rid of quite a few of her lines and uh, got more definition of the jawline as well. You can see here, you can see there, no Botox or or Dysport was done on that day. Only the, um, the, the sculpture was done that day. She didn't even notice the difference, uh, except her husband told her she looked better. But when she saw her photographs, because I, I guess it was subtle, she was extremely, extremely pleased. I've since gone on to do two more treatments on her. So I typically will do two vials, three sessions, spaced three to four weeks apart, but it, but it varies by patient as well. And this was panfacial volume. And I had some tear trough pictures that I was not able to integrate into the um, presentation. So thank you very much. And I'll take any questions. Oops.
0: If you have a um, non-technique-related adverse event, so an allergic problem or an intolerance or something, and you layered the fillers, can you determine which caused the problem, or do you have to eliminate
1: those for future use? That's a in that fantastic patient? question, and that is one of the dangers of layering, and maybe you won't layer in the same visit, but it would be harder to tell. However, sometimes when you layer, you might have treated more than one region of the face, so if you see more of a problem in one area, although technically an allergic reaction, if it were a systemic one, it would be everywhere, but if you've treated, let's say, used hyaluronic acid in one area with no problem, but then layered it over calcium hydroxyl appetite, and that's where you have a problem, in theory, you could deduct, you could deduce that it was the calcium hydroxyl appetite. Just to say that, for example. Yes, or
0: hi. Um, what is your uh, prophylactic dose of Valtrex if they have a history of? I, I HSV? typically, I mean,
1: this isn't. I typically use one gram day day before and the day of, and the day after.
0: And um, the liposomal Lidocaine. Yes. Do you use the LMX4? Is that your, what you prefer? The LMX4
1: is what I typically okay. use, because that, that I can get to the, to the patient.
0: And um, when you correct the temporal atrophy, is it a threading type of technique that no, you use? No, it's a deep or?
1: depot. You're going deep till you hit almost the base. You're going to hear a pop as you go through the, through the different layers. Patients okay. always hear the pop of okay. the needle go through. So you're going very deep placement and start to inflate it as you so would. So it's just
0: a bolus? It's a bolus. Of how much? Uh,
1: I typically, no less than one cc, but it's not unusual to have like two cc's that you're using per side. It depends on the person.
0: Okay, and um, when you do crow, back to your other lecture, with the crow's feet, um, I know some people bleb, others put it right into the muscle. What's your... I go just under the
1: skin. Do you bleb it,
0: though? I'm sorry? Do you bleb it?
1: If there's more superficial, tiny lines, I bleb it. Okay. If not, I will go into the, to the muscle. But the, the whole point is you don't go to the bone right. for, the, for the eye ones. And, and if I'm going under the eye for very tiny, tiny lines, and if I'm treating hypertrophic orbicularis um, underneath the eye, which I didn't cover, then I, will, I bleb. It'll be blebbed one or two units. And then I'll use a cotton-tipped applicator just to smooth it out.
0: OK. And last question. I'm still having a really hard time finding the DPO. Um,
1: DAO. I'm sorry. The,
0: the muscle with the Botox.
1: Right. But which muscle? I'm sorry.
0: The one when people sort of like curl.
1: So the depressor angular? Yes. Oris? Yeah.
0: That muscle. Right. Can you go back to that lady with the scar?
1: Like, I didn't do her with Botox, but just showing her. Showing. Her, yeah, use her if slide. Can you could just
0: give me some type of idea of?
1: Let me see if I can go back anatomical back to landmark. Sure. Let me see if I can go to. Okay. Well, will yes. use, yeah. use her. So anatomical landmark in her. Now, you know she has volume last. You see the sagging under her chin, so it's not even going to be worth her money or your time to probably put much in here since she has so much extra skin there. But if you were going to do it, I would just follow. You can do it this way. You can kind of follow nasolabial fold to the corners of the mouth this way and go right behind over here on the bone. If you go too far anterior, you're probably going to get depressor labii inferior, so you'd rather go just a little bit further back, right on the bone.
0: And then it's right on the angle of
1: the mandible? It's right on the angle. Okay. Sometimes you can go a little bit higher, but again, some of the fibers for DLI might run together with DAO, so you might get into trouble there. But in some patients, I actually have them make little faces, and I might get it superiorly. But most of the time, to be safe, start, on the, start low, low and slightly posterior. Thank you. You're welcome. Can you review your technique for injecting perline into the cheeks? Sure. Let's find another model. Um, We'll use her as well. Um, basically, what I do is, I, well, I'm with, it's actually easier to do with somebody, you know, live in front of me, but generally speaking, you of trying to find, like, where that sweet spot is. And talking about all these fat compartments in the face, I usually just use my finger or a cotton-tipped applicator and push on different regions, and when I see the most amount of lift that happens, I go in straight and inject a bolus, you know, fairly deeply under there, and start watching the cheek inflate. After that, I might come more superficially and blend it with other areas of the face as well and kind of going more laterally. And again, with blurring is, you know, with her, she's got uh, prominent zygomatic arches. So what we did is bolus and then went over and then layered over it to, to sort of create that continuity from cheek toward, you know, as you're actually going toward the temple and the eyes. So again, so you don't just cause a blob here. But typically speaking, you don't want to inject only anterior without taking care of the lateral one or it looks like they have little apples or Plums or something on the front of the face. You want to make sure that you kind of get the cheeks are kind of this oval. But when you're in the right place, um, you'll watch the face inflate, and you're, a lot of times you'll even see like the infraorbital region improve. Again, these these tear troughs or the oculomalar crease, it'll start to blur out as well without actually even having to go in there and inject. But that's basically the the technique. Is that it's a it's a deep placement. It's not superficial. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. What size? Whatever it takes for that individual patient. I told you I wasn't good at estimating uh, amounts, but it's not unusual to use one ml per side. Some people do small boluses and then massage them and bring them together. There's a lot of people that like to do these little smaller boluses. But I don't do so much. Um, linear threading or, um, or fanning. Fanning, of course, increases the risk of bruising. I don't even fan in this area. What I like to do for treating the nasolabial fold and um, is I come in laterally and I go deep this way, and I actually go under the line, and aspirate, make sure you're not in, in there, and go fairly close to that uh, alar groove there and start again just slowly, bolusing very slowly, and as you can watch that, that uh, line, it, or start to efface a little bit, you also watch the lips start to come up as well. Um, do you all know what, this, what these lines are? What's actually anatomically, what those are? What are those two lines that are right there that she's complaining? What are those lines? Anybody can answer.
0: Oral commissures? I'm sorry? Oral commissures, is that what you're saying? No, what, what,
1: uh, what is it made of? What are those things made of? What, what are those, what is actually, what is, what is demarcating this line? That's actually orbicularis oris. That's how thin she is. That's actually her muscle right there and she has complete loss of fat, everything. So that to the edge that that line is, that's actually her muscle right there. Okay. So one of the problems, this is to point out a problem. Sometimes when people are trying to treat oral commissures, they're actually injecting into the sometimes into the muscle there or into some of the buccal fat pads of which she doesn't have. So just make sure that you, know, you see what the actual cause is so that you don't create this kind of chipmunk look or these little bulges or these little folds in this area that don't, get, that don't seem to get better no matter what treatment you do. But that, yeah, so that's orbicularis oris right there all the way around the mouth.
0: When you're using Sculptra and other fillers on the same day in the same patient, how do you incorporate those? What do you inject first?
1: I do the Sculptra first uh, because I'm going to already have a little bit of numbing and plus it's already got some numbing in it as well. I do those injections. Typically if I'm going to do them on the same treatment session, I'm not going to do any quote superficially or more superficial sculpt. I'm going to do deep placement supraperiosteal. So I do that first and then I follow by uh, with placement of, of the HA or, or whatever filler I'm using that day.
0: Okay. Would you mind going over your tear trough injection technique?
1: By my what, I'm sorry? Would
0: you mind going over your tear trough
1: injection technique? No, I don't mind at all going, going over it, and I wish I had, I, I really wanted the slides that, that I was trying to get my office to send between lectures. But what I normally do is I'll put a tiny bit, uh, some topical numbing, and then I'll do a little bit of infiltration with, uh, with plain lidocaine. And then um, I go straight in, go in at a 90 degree angle into the skin, hit, hit, you know, hit bottom as much as I can, and then walk the needle up, palpate the orbital rim, and the orbital rim itself is going to be a grooved surface at the edge, so you'll feel it. And you don't want to advance your needle beyond that. But you're under the muscle, and uh, you're under the muscle. I stay, I stay very, you know, still with that. And sometimes I'll thread. If I'm under the muscle, I might come in a little bit more laterally this way. It all depends on the person's structure as well and what their tear trough or, or crease is like. But the key is that it's, it's slow, and you can always add to it. Remember, the HAs are probably going to get a little bit fuller rather than than not full. And as long as you're under the muscle, you're not gonna have any problem in terms of creating a Tyndall effect or anything like that. Just remember that too much filler can also obstruct just uh, lymphatic drainage as well. So so just a little bit, but I come up in this way, and in no cases do you wanna go toward and actually inject the orbit itself. You wanna stay below the bone, so palpate because it's, it's amazing what variation there is. Some people have their orbital rim very, very close to the lower lid margin. Others have them well down, advancing toward the cheek. So if you're not palpating for that, for that orbital rim, you're, you're missing out on, on how to really get the tear troughs to look good. You're not, you're not really trying to treat just the line itself. Again, it goes back to the underlying cause, and you have a separation of fat compartments along with bony loss. The actual orbital rim itself recedes. Just like gums can recede, that bone also recedes, so the eye socket grows with age and uh, so your older patients it's not unusual to find that orbital rim to be you know further further down from the lid margin
0: question do you feel uh, comfortable injecting any pregnant patients with fillers I'm sorry pregnant or lactating patients well technically
1: you're not supposed to again like with has happened to me with neuromodulators I have done it uh, before but I I try not to Uh, for example um, Patients tend to have some edema anyway while they're pregnant. So let's say it were safe. You may not be getting a complete view of what's going on. Uh, have I injected nursing mothers? Again, inadvertently, I try to get as you know, good a history of it. I probably might, might break my rule a little tiny bit if I'm doing something locally. But really online, you know, if you're really following the product insert, you, you theoretically should not inject
0: okay, pregnant or nursing. Same thing with lactation too for Botox, would you say? Same thing. Same thing. Okay.
1: Same thing. They can wait.
0: Question. I know you're mentioning aspiration. I find it's hard to do with radius. Other than knowing your anatomical landmarks, how do you work around that? What needle are you using? Uh, I think it's a 20. The one that comes with
1: it. Yeah. It's a great needle, but the needles that I really, really love are the Terumo, the red ones that come with uh, the medicis products, yeah. and you can also buy those separately. Mm-hmm. It's a because it's a 27 lumen instead of a 28, mm-hmm. and uh, and it but it's still a 29 and it's a 29. Uh, on the outside, so it's really nice. Uh, 29 gauge, but with a 27 lumen. I don't have a problem aspirating you with the radius with, that. with that. Oh, and another tip in case for, I don't know how many of you are using polylactic acid, PLLA, but sometimes when needles clog, the way you do it is, you know, once you preload your syringes, make sure there's nothing in the hub whatsoever. And you probably already knew this, but I'd do the same thing with the calcium hydroxyl apatite. Don't leave anything, just aspirate back and leave a little empty area and then take out that, you know, then bring it up to the hub and needle when you're getting ready to inject and you'll have a lot less clogging. Hand rejuvenation, yes. do you have a favorite filler? Are you using both? Calcium hydroxyl apatite is what I had mentioned earlier and I use that and I actually add half a cc of, of lidocaine. I do one little entry point, just a topical one. I mean, I don't even use topical numbing for it. And then what I do is just pinch up the skin and under, you know, inject underneath it and you create kind of a, it looks like a yellow bolus almost. It looks like some type of fatty tumor. And then I actually take the um, ariderm gel, I mean, you can use any other ones that you want, but I use the ariderm gel that has the vitamin K oxide in it and, uh, you know, that's for bruising. It's also made by Biopal. And I use it to massage uh, the area and I just do vigorous massage and I do warn patients that some patients inexplicably have this kind of excessive edema for a couple of weeks. It goes away, but I do warn them that their rings may not fit uh, the same, but I, I find that it works really well. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Oh, I'm sorry? Can you use Botox, at all on the lid? Botox on the lower lid? Yeah. Yes, but don't, don't cross the mid pupillary line. So, for example, let's say with her, I mean, she, I don't see why she would need it, but I would not go. I can go one or two millimeters below the lash margin, but smile. I mean, you'd use it only if you really see that they're having a hypertrophic muscle there. Otherwise, uh, if they don't, and you're already relaxing a muscle that either has been operated on, uh, or it just has a lot of sun damage and doesn't have a good, that snap test that you want to do, make sure that it, the, the, if you just tug on the skin, make sure it recoils quickly. Otherwise, you can create uh, some scleral show and probably dry eye from inability to close the eyes. So remember, our, about two units. Usually, the, the study that was done initially on Asian skin was actually um, was to do two units here and then in a region that was halfway between lateral canthus and, and the, the mid-pupillary line, five units. Uh, Into that, and that's where they showed uh, actually elevate opening up of the of the eyes as well. But less is more, and you want to make sure that you don't um, you don't cause too much hollowing out of the eye underneath or or dry eye as well. Do do you do rejuvenation of the
0: earlobes, and if so, what do you use?
1: Oh, I love that. It's this way. There's never any leftover hyaluronic acid. I typically use HA, and uh, but. Again, cautious. Some some of the ladies with larger earlobes. It's funny. I was. I guess I fell asleep to an episode of Two and a Half Men, and and if anybody knows that show, and Charlie was against older women because they have big, fat, not big, big, like loose earlobes. But in any case, the the earlobe can even take off. I've used a full CC and just treating an an earlobe to get you know earrings to clip on better or, or hang better, but. You can also use less, and you can just take leftover. If you have any leftover that you were using somewhere else on the face, it's easy enough to just pop it in. And it just goes directly into the lobe itself. It plumps up. You massage it, and you're done. That's, a, that's an easy one to do. And again, the nasal reshaping, I go under the um, depends on, on, what, on what regions. Nasal reshaping is fast becoming one of my favorite things as well, especially post-Botox, uh, and I can go over that with you afterwards. But what I wanted to show was that sometimes after Botox, especially in older patients that have lost this bony part of the nose, their Botox uh, or, or disport relaxes Um, the features so much so it's like the eyebrows become further apart but they also seem to scrunch down it's not really a pseudotosis that they're getting they're just getting so much relaxation that they can't even uh, contract and that's really just due to volume loss so when you put some some volume here some filler here it gives a nice shape to the nose but it also brings the eyebrows ever so slightly closer together and makes the botulinum toxin results look a lot better as well well thank you very much and I guess we'll go see the exhibits